Hey there, it's Erica, and you're listening to Better Product. We are the show that celebrates great digital products and the people and processes that make them stronger. How you position your product is a critical first step in any product journey. Positioning is what allows you to define your vision, and it gives everyone invested in your product a clear target to follow. So today, we are taking a look at positioning misconceptions. We'll also show you how to make your positioning better than the competition. And in today's market, you're going to need that edge. Let's hear more. Hello, Better Product co-hosts, friends, colleagues. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Is this our first Friday recording? No, definitely not. We've done a few of these. (laughs) Wow. I need help. In what ways? My memory, because I turned 40 and it's just gone downhill completely. I thought this is the first time we'd ever recorded on a Friday and you were like, nope. I didn't want to say anything, but no. I mean, ever since that. you keep turned not, 40. Yeah, keep not saying anything. <laughs> That's the only way to protect me from here on out. Yeah, last I'm episode. Older, so I have to sit closer to the bar. I just seem to be my excuse for everything now. Yeah, you said this last episode too. First I know. episode at 40. I do remember that. I do remember mentioning being 40. So... I at least have uh, one week of memory left. Does it really feel that different compared to when you turned 30? Or- well, I think the only thing that's different is that lately I have been uh, struggling to remember like some names and I get this moment of panic where I'm like, oh my God, am I like aging? But no, other than that, it's it's all the same. But I am starting to trick myself into thinking I might be like, my my memory might be worse than it is. Hmm. So that surprises me with all the crosswords and Sudoku you play. Well, I think that's part of the reason my brain is only storing crossword clues now. And it's like pushing out like useful things like people's names. Hmm. So I need to stop doing crosswords. Someone was telling me about an article that said people who are like really, really smart actually have worse memories sometimes because like their mm-hmm. conscious brain doesn't have enough space to hold all of the knowledge that's in their total brain. And so sometimes you just need to like cut things or forget things until all of a sudden you need to remember it. So it's a priorities problem, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't remember your name because you're not a priority to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. Well, definitely should remember the name of this hypothetical person we're about to talk about in our icebreaker. I love this tradition, by the way. I'm really glad we've started doing this. Listeners, I don't know if you find this part fun, but I hope it helps you see us more as people before we get into the product discussion. So icebreaker, if you could debate any person, real, not real, dead, alive, who would it be and why? And you have to debate them, like publicly debate them, not just a dinner table conversation. You're in an auditorium at IU or Notre Dame, if you can picture that for the two of you, and you have to debate this person for an hour, who would it be? Christian's like, God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is a good one. I'm going to work backwards a little bit to answer this question because I know like the topic that I would want to debate and I know what side that I would want to be on. I don't know who would be the best person to defend the opposite opinion. So the topic that I would want to debate is why cars look the way that they do. I think 90% of cars are so much uglier than they have to be. This is something I'm very passionate about. Why do we have anything that looks like a minivan? Why? 
Like there are plenty of other shapes that are aerodynamic that fit that much on the inside. There are some cars that just look so ugly for no reason. And I feel like once I figured out all the science behind it, I'd have a pretty good case. Wait, can you Wait. give us a pick? Yeah. yeah, like you don't know the science behind it though, right? No, not yet, but I'll find it. I'll debate you I know, right I mean, now. Like, and all plenty... I'm going to say is, <laughs> Megan, draw me a picture of a minivan that's not ugly first. And then we can see if there's a debate. But think of something like an Escalade. An Escalade serves the same functions as a minivan. Just put doors, automatic doors on it, and that's just already so much better than a okay. minivan. Okay, okay, Megan. I don't want to pull. I don't want to pull parent rank here. And yes, you can think I am triggered because I own a minivan. Okay, <laughs> and listen. So this um, sounds like personal bias. That wait, we make we you need a very make good... model make model year, <laughs> Christian. Okay, describe actually... the minivan. It is a Toyota Sienna 2014, and it is one of only two minivan models that is worth driving. So if you don't drive the Toyota Sienna or the Honda Odyssey, and it's not post-2015 or 16, that is ridiculous. Like, those shouldn't exist. Town and countries? No. That's Dodge Caravans? No. And those might not even be made anymore because somebody finally figured it out. But here's the thing, Megan. You think it's just about automatic doors, but it is not. And I want to say, you think I'm coming from bias, but you will not find any minivan owner who defends the minivan. They are basically like the best you can get is acceptance and understanding why you had to make that choice. But I want you. And that's exactly my point. That's like, well, you shouldn't have to settle for acceptance. I agree. You should and be I, able I don't want to drive to something that looks cool. Listen, I welcome you to go back to Notre Dame and get out your sketchbook and your go to class and design me a minivan. You were busy designing shoes, by the way. You could have designed a minivan and then we could have taken it on this show because here's the thing. We have a two-car garage, all right? Now, an automatic door can still hit my car when the kids get out, okay? So the sliding door means no dings in my car. That's number one. Number two, the reason why you have to downgrade or side grade, it's not up or down, it's like side grade from some behemoth SUV to a minivan is because you need the kid to be able to get in and out of the car themselves. And that was huge. I completely understand all of that. I just don't see where those requirements and looking ugly need to go together. Yeah. Like, why can't Function. you have those requirements on something that looks cool? I mean, I think maybe I've been, you know, abused by this notion for too long. I don't know if it's a debate as much as I want you to take this challenge on and go get vented. I don't know. Well, why that could why take a while. Elon or even Well, that's the thing. Even Tesla, like the truck was a step in the right direction, but even Tesla is making cars that look like other cars even though they're doing so much else that's different. Like I think we need to fundamentally like rethink what cars look like. Hmm. And that's why I think I need to figure out the science behind like how much range could they possibly mm -hmm. have with aerodynamics, yeah. aerodynamics, et cetera. But well, Megan, yeah. ir irrespective okay. of the science, can you paint us a picture of what your ideal car would look like aesthetically? Oh, I have no clue. I would probably just get like a VW van at that point. But <laughs> that's fair. That that might yeah. be. You might have just actually said the the new VW van that's coming out. Those are cool. Yeah, that could be it. That might be it. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll see. We'll see. Christian, who would you debate? Uh, well, my dream just came true, and it was to debate somebody about minivans. And you still lost. <laughs> well, I didn't say I was going to win. I just wanted to have the debate. 
It just nobody's talking about it. Um, who would I want to debate? Seriously, anybody, anywhere, I would relish any opportunity. You know, I had to like read the Lincoln Douglas debates. And so I don't I don't think debates exist like that anymore because it's just like ridiculous when we have like the presidential debates. I would love to watch a legitimate like debate, like a real one, not for show. And so I would like to debate Lincoln. Not because I doubt him, okay, but I'm just curious, like, was he really, like, that good? Is my new modern 21st century education, like, make me able to debate him? Or, like, is he still really good? I don't know. I just wonder if we could actually debate. And I would love for him to debate in our time. So not Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I want him to come to our time and pick a modern topic and see if he can really hang with uh, modern debates. What, what topic should Abraham Lincoln comment on? Oh, well, I don't want to make things too political, but um, so let's go with something maybe more frivolous, like should minivans exist, you know, like that. <laughs> okay. In their current form, <laughs> the answer is no. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I'd probably have him come. You know what? As much as the climate change people that don't believe in it love Lincoln, I would really like to debate him and I would take the side of climate change not being real and see if he can actually take the other side change and get mind. his own, you know, followers to to come along. I like that. That's, so that's, that's the key out of this. Time travel, Lincoln, debate. Let's do it. Perfect. How exciting. All um, right, we done with the show or are we, we're, we good? Yeah, or? we're done. Show over. No. Okay. Uh just kidding. Well, that, Christian, that was actually a really good example to end on because Abraham Lincoln, I think, you know, clearly led our country through one of the most, if not the most divisive period in our history. Because of that, had to change a lot of perceptions, get people aligned on the future of the country, right? That, that's not a, a short order. And today, we might not be talking about something as ex- existential as that in every product, but we are talking about positioning, which is really all about perception and creating the right impression of what you're trying to do with your company, with your product. We've talked about this topic a lot on the show, um, bits and pieces with examples, but we're dedicating a show today to actually unpack it a little bit more and offer a process for how you actually use positioning. So Megan, you're kind of on point for setting us up for this since you are a product marketer working very closely with these problems every day. So can you start by describing what positioning even is and how there are different dimensions that people have to think up, think about when crafting it for themselves? Yeah, I feel like I've been talking about positioning a lot recently. So positioning is your foundation. It's how you talk about what you do, who you are, and why that matters. And we talk about like when you set a foundation for your company, it's a combination of both words and visuals. And visuals obviously is that brand identity and positioning is the words. And positioning as a a framework or as an idea is made up of a few different things. So you typically have your foundational statement, which is that like one sentence that is the truest, most factual way to describe what you are, for whom, why that matters. And then from there, we can build out benefit pillars or um, differentiators that all of the messaging is crafted around. So let's say your top three or so things, value adds that you give to your customers or differentiators or benefits that your product offers. And then your features kind of become supporting points to support 
the offering of those benefits. And you can craft external facing messaging around all of those. So positioning is at its core, your North Star. It should set the course for whatever you do pretty much as a company. And it should also describe who you are in this exact moment. While it's always internal and it's very often not external, there needs to be another layer of branding um, applied to it before it turns into external messaging. So your positioning is that core internal description that then gets another you know, facelift before it goes externally. Yeah, I love that. We That's a big thing we say at Innovate Map a lot. It is your North Star for your company. It's something that your product marketers will help you create, but ultimately everyone needs to see it and be acting um, in accordance with it. So I guess, Christian, with your product design background, how I guess how is positioning seen outside of the product marketing space? Like, are enough people paying attention Literally to nobody it? Nobody talks about it. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm still learning it because it's yeah. not part of product design at all. I think even because product marketing as a function, I think in in really strong uh, companies and and ones that are more, I think, modern, they're more um, together, but they weren't they weren't a part of my workflow when I was in house and software companies at all. And I don't know that that was right or wrong. I don't, it, I'm just saying it wasn't that way. Now with much more like consumer oriented, more brand forward, more competitive markets, there's no choice but to have product marketing and the product teams integrated to the point where we have people on the show where um, the product designer is on a team with a product marketer. We heard that with Pinterest a couple of years ago. So yeah, I would say that at least, especially like for UX designers, uh, it doesn't come up at all. In fact, I was going to ask you, Megan, because I'm still trying to understand, can you really figure out what a, like you can tell if a product is designed well, if you can use the product and you can see good visuals. Can you on the outside, how do you determine whether a product is po positioned well, or is it even possible to tell from the outside? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. It is possible to tell if a product is positioned well from the outside because your positioning, if it sets the foundation for your messaging and your messaging is not good, or if it's not like communicating values and benefits clearly, if it's not speaking to the correct audiences, then you know there's an issue at the foundation, which is positioning. A lot of times, you know, misclaiming a category or attempting to create a category is something you can see pretty easily from the outside. And that's that's a positioning issue. You'll know if the positioning is good if you get a clear look at let's say top level benefits of the product. Other ways that we, if we actually have the positioning statement in front of us, let's say for one of our clients, we do have a typical rubric that we run through in order to evaluate that. And we even tell our clients, like you guys should use this rubric to evaluate what draft we're presenting to you today. So those are some of the, the things that we can do specifically. We call them the keys to effective positioning. I actually just talked about this yesterday when I had a conversation on the Product Marketing Life podcast. And so those four keys to effective positioning that we always harp on are that it should be simple. You should avoid any meaningless claims like world's best. You know, you're not going to see that anywhere in positioning. Uh, repeatable. So everybody should be able to say it consistently, get on the same page, like rally around it internally. It should be relevant, so it should address your customers' most important pains. You should have a clear target audience in mind, and you should know exactly what their problems are and how you are solving those problems, and you need that, that needs to come out in your positioning. And finally, it should be unique, so you should be saying something that no other company is claiming, especially one of your competitors. 
And a bonus one that I think I've talked about on this show also is that it should be true. So yes, it needs to be factual. That's pretty obvious. But a way to figure out if if your positioning statement is true is to really ask yourself like, okay, does this sound like us or does this sound like a different company that's very similar to us? Because it's still, there is a little bit of subjectivity to it that it needs to feel true to who you are as a company. So all of those make for a good positioning statement. And if we have that actual statement in front of us and we're evaluating it based on like that rubric, then it'll become pretty clear if it's good or not. Yeah, that's excellent. I think that, um, you know, when you asked me, Eric, like how it comes up and I said it doesn't, Mm -hmm. um, I do feel like there are ways, as you were talking, Megan, that I felt disconnected from the positioning of a product company from the product side when there's clearly different features or visions that you may have for the product that aren't connected to what you want to be. But one like funny example is you know, my background, I also studied GIS. And so my first job was designing GIS software, but it was very different. The use case for the GIS software I designed that I worked for was very different from what I used in school when I was building maps. It was a different product. And so I built, I used a different product for a different use. Um, and then I went to this company with that sort of mindset. I was like, I get to design this software. And so the, my whole first year, I'm like, when do we get to design this, this, and this? I'm like, that's not who buys our product. Because I hadn't ever occurred to me that there could be a different position for a product company, I was just like, well, it's GIS software. So I know that. When, yes, I understood GIS, but it was actually not at all what this product was for. It's like just saying any clothing company, they're all very different. You can't just be like, well, I've worked for one, so I'm going to go do the same thing at this other totally different clothing line. It's just, I think the positioning that you take in the market does have that internal part on the product and it can create those gaps when you don't really understand what you're what you're uh, designing for. Mm. Yeah, like to tie that analogy together, I'm really glad you brought this up because it kind of segues into my next example. But it would be like, so you as a junior designer at this GIS software company, comparing that to let's say a clothing company, it would be like if you worked as a junior designer at a men's clothing company and you were like, we should start this line of dresses. And they were like, what? that's not what our audience wants. And you're like, but this is a clothing company. Right. And then they're like, no, but our audience is like straight men. So that's why they're probably not going to want to wear those for the most part. But this is actually, I'm really, really glad you made that connection because we recently had um, a client that we refreshed positioning for. It went really well. They loved the direction. And the CEO came back in the next meeting and he had like marked up and annotated the foundational statement that we worked on and was referring to it back to us as their product roadmap like the positioning foundational statement with his annotations on it, he was calling the product roadmap. And it was because he picked out pieces of it where he was like, okay, we're playing in this category right now. That's very true. I think we want to stay in this category. So here's some ideas I have for us to stay in this category, but also stay innovative. And then he picked out another piece and was like, well, this is true today, but I don't want it to be true in the future. I think that's going to limit us. So here's where we can maybe introduce features or products that will change that in the next five to 10 years or so. And that is actually, I mean, when I said positioning is the North Star, that's what we mean. And it it doesn't always come across that way to some of our clients. And I think a lot of founders of startups especially are not thinking about positioning in that way, but it should truly be setting that foundation, not just for your messaging, but for your product as well. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that example Megan, that's a huge application, like where 
this foundation starts to not just be something you believe, but something that you're acting upon and doing. So that, yeah, that's a great example of how to do that. As far as like getting buy-in on it and making sure like everybody in your company knows what it is and why it's such a clear part of a decision-making process, how do you communicate the foundational statement, your company's positioning to the many stakeholders in your company? Do you, Are you asking me how we, or, or like a founder, how does a founder communicate? Yeah, we could start with the founder. Um, or I would also like to take it from the product marketer perspective, like maybe positioning or clear positioning isn't as valued in a company. What would you recommend for them in bringing up more conversations about it? So people are thinking about it, asking questions and using it to make decisions about their product. Yeah, I... Um... I've never worked in-house as a product marketer, but I've worked with a lot of product marketers who are in-house. And I think the best thing that you can do as an in-house product marketer is to try to not get bogged down by sales enablement asks and try to like elevate your role a little bit more. By elevating your role, you will gain the opportunity and the right to talk about this positioning and, and talk about things that are existed a little bit of a higher level than sales enablement or little messaging tweaks. But in order to do that, you really do kind of, and I heard this recommended at a, a conference recently too, like kind of to go on a, a stakeholder roadshow, like throughout the company and come up with like where you see, you know, the biggest gaps and what you think could really solve those and like basically get one stakeholder on board at the time until you work your way up. Well, and you've, I was going to say too, you've, you've helped uh, clients that have rebranded that we've worked with on helping communicate that. And we've had some do big sort of like new brand rollouts internally. Those are bigger company, what I would call bigger over a hundred employees. I know there's, we're not talking like tens of thousands of employees when we say big, but um, I think there's that. I was going to answer that question, Eric, even more simply taking the assumption. And I don't know this to be true, but I suspect this is true that product marketing and the positioning work doesn't get communicated uh, really at all to the product teams. So I imagine that's where most companies fall. So my advice is just communicate it first. I have no doubt that the C-level will probably do presentations and things like that. But a lot of times the founder will be talking vision. And then as you grow, they start talking like company health and like how the company's going to grow. But there's this gap that will start to emerge as a company grows where the founder won't be talking about that anymore. And as you hire new people, we're actually going through this as an agency where you have to get to a size where you're like, oh, all the stuff that seems obvious to us isn't obvious because half of our employees have only been here for 18 months. So how do we help get people to know that? And I think a lot of companies probably also do that. They forget that, oh, you know, all the new people we have don't see the market the way that we do. So I would, my like really simple answer to your question is just do it. Just ensure that it's part of your onboarding that your new employees understand your position. If you shift positions, take that as seriously in the market as seriously as you would take that in the market, take it as seriously internally to make sure everybody's making decisions with the right you know, sort of framework. Completely agree with that, Christian. And I, I do think, like you said, it's typical that at some of these larger companies, the CEO or whoever is in charge of owning the vision is constantly preaching that vision. And like whether or not it stays the same or if it changes, but especially if it changes, you know, if like they come together as a, an executive team and they decide, well, we really think we're going to need to pivot or our vision has slightly shifted based on this change in the market. 
And like, that's when you get the whole company together for an all team, whatever. And you get everyone in assembly hall and you have like a big vision presentation from the CEO. And it's like, this is where we're going now. And I think that still needs to be like, there's, there's a disconnect between like big picture vision painting and like grounding that in like a foundational statement and what right. that means as applied to product. And so even then, like even when they're doing these, you know, big presentations and everybody pay attention once a year, once every quarter um, announcements, like even then it's not even tied to positioning mm. typically. And I think what you're, it sounds like what you're advocating for is that plus like smaller touch points, like onboarding, like just being more consistent and making sure everybody is constantly hearing the same things. Exactly. I was thinking, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think I was thinking too, Megan, how if I were listening to me say that and just say, I trust that this is the case, the one piece of evidence I do have for saying that is when when we kick off with clients, we're talking about maybe more of a series A or larger company. So let's just say over a million in ARR. So when we work with companies like that, the reason why that's important is there's more than just the founder on the leadership team. You might even have somebody in the C-suite who is not a founder at that stage. And when that happens, we get working with them. I'm sure you see, I've been in the room and I've seen like when these workshops happen, it is probably 0% of the time does a workshop get conducted where all of those leaders have the same vision or interpretation of what they do. And if that's the case, then imagine what the employees of the company are thinking, because you have like maybe a VP of marketing, a CEO, a CTO, and they're all saying different things. That's part of what people pay us to do is to get that all aligned. So that's the evidence I do have that it's Mm -hmm. not aligned, because if they're not aligned, imagine what all the employees that they have reporting to them are thinking. For sure. Yeah. Megan, you, you need to verbally agree with me so that people... Like, oh, I thought I already did. Yeah, no, I totally did. agree. It's cool. a dumpster fire. Cool. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and like you said, that's typically what we get paid to do is come in and wrangle everybody and get everyone on the same page. Yep. And then when our process gets screwed up, it's when like one stakeholder wasn't in the room when we did that. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. We only have a few minutes left. So I want us to do this really rapid fire is there ever a time a company should consider, and I know there is because we've seen it and done it, but is there ever a time when companies should consider changing their positioning? And Erica, what, what kind of question is that? Absolutely. No. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, there is. I will say positioning is because it is foundational. It should be in the first place built to last for a decent amount of time in the software space. That's probably no more than three to five years. That's like a century in software time. But you should consider changing your positioning when something foundational has changed. So if you acquire another company or if you are breaking into a new market or if you're expanding your offerings or anything like any really fundamental decision you're considering making to your company or product is going to probably affect that foundational statement. I would say I I do agree with Megan that I think if you have good positioning, you probably shouldn't change, but that's kind it's, this is uh, very, very like specific to this day and age and this current time. So maybe it can extrapolate. So during the pandemic, there were a lot of companies that started. And when, when Megan says something big and foundational, there are big sort of macro level things that may shift. And I have had three conversations with founders of companies that were started during the pandemic on a very 
pandemic-oriented, remote work-oriented value prop. And all three of them I've talked to are still doing well today, but they're almost like reaching the end of whatever that lane is, and they need to shift to something that's got broader appeal. And so that is a perfect example of where repositioning, they're still okay in this area. And so if I were to try to extrapolate like to not be pandemic oriented, I would say if you find yourself in a market or a lane where you can kind of see that you're sort of maximizing and the, there's sort of only so much you can do there, mm. I think it's good to start thinking about how can I hop lanes, still stay on that course, but maybe change to one where I'm a little bit more fast tracked to a market or value prop that's a little more valuable. And the pandemic's just a good example of we were yeah. remote, but now we're kind of yeah. hybrid. There's a bigger use case at play that you should be positioning. Sure. For. Yeah, don't totally limit yourself. Agree. Yeah, awesome. Well, great conversation today. Foundational work here that every product company needs to be thinking about. And listeners, thank you for being here. If you liked our discussion today, we're actually going to be talking about this a lot more very soon because I'm excited to announce we're launching a special brand new series called Unlock Product Marketing. And Christian, Megan, and myself will be stepping away from the mic so we can welcome our colleagues, Tina Hafer and Liana Adiola for the next few weeks. Uh, Tina and Liana have lots of product marketing experience, product marketing team leadership experience, and we'll be unpacking everything you need to know about product marketing, how it's changing as a discipline, and most of all, what it can do for your company. That's coming out in the middle of June. So we'll have that for you here in a few weeks. And until then... Uh, Thanks for joining us for another week of Better Product. Second to Abraham Lincoln that I would debate is Tina Hafer. It's Tina Hafer. Oh, yeah. I would pay to see that. Buckle up, everyone. Buckle up. Grab your keys. We're about to unlock product marketing. Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't yet, be sure to join the Better Product community. We've got all sorts of content and resources for you. And if you want more audio, don't forget... The Business of Product is our latest show to join the Better Product Network, and you can find that and more at betterproduct.community.